Hi, everybody. My guest today is drummer Steve Barney. Steve has played with a host of names over the years, including uh, Jeff Beck, Atomic Kitten, Sugar Babes, Annie Lennox, Anastasia, and more. Uh, we had a good chat about his career and who he's played with and how he got there. Here's what he had to say. Hi, Steve. Good evening, Chris. How are you? We are here, and that is to be celebrated, mate. Exactly. It's great to see you, brother. Yeah, you too, man. Listen, um, we've got a lot to talk about. Um, but with these things, I usually start with people to go all the way back to the beginning, just to get an idea of what it was that sort of sparked the, the moment that you started uh, learning your craft. So the younger years of Steve Barney, what were they like? When, how old were you when you started playing and what were your inspirations? Okay, well, I'm really glad you haven't started at the end. So thanks for that. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, mate, I was about five, five years old. I had kind of like, I had and have a, a mum and dad who's really into music, and my dad especially loves music. And I was just grew up in a household where music was playing a lot, and my dad was attending a lot of concerts, and I was just absorbing, I think, his love of music. So that, let's, let's get that clear from the start. My inspiration is my dad. Really, you know, and my mum for other reasons as well. You know, her support of me is amazing. But yeah, my dad, my dad's record collections, and just growing up in and around, you know, music, loud music, rock music, prog rock music, you know, and I got like a little toy drum kit for a Christmas present with um, Top of the Pops on the bass drum. It was from the Argos catalogue, and. Um, I used to just tap along to Deep Purple or Dark Side of the Moon or whatever my dad was playing along to. And I was just, you know, I was playing on this thing. And I think before that, I probably had biscuit tins. So let's, let's not forget the biscuit tin. Sure, gotta, sure. Got to get the biscuit tins in. But yeah, I was playing lots of stuff. And I guess like any good parent, you know, supportive parent, he noticed that there was a, a nucleus or a spark of, you know, a smile probably in my face and responding to this music I was listening to. And really and truly, where it really kicked off for me, and I'll always hold this particular event and night as the night it switched my mind as going, I want to be a drummer, is that my dad and my uncle Roger took me to see uh, Genesis. Wow. Um, in 1980, so I was nine. And, <clears throat> you know, long before days of where you can just buy tickets online and kind of, you know, get, you know, get tickets, you know, easily, so to speak. My uncle Roger, God bless him, had to camp out on Regent Road in Great Yarmouth all night in order to get a ticket. Now, it was a hot ticket because Genesis was already a massive arena band then. But this was the Duke tour with Turn It On Again was on. That right. Record. Yeah. Yeah. It was a big thing that not only a big thing that Genesis came to Great Yarmouth on the on the North Norfolk coast. You know, I think that's sort of surreal in itself to me. But the fact that my uncle queued all night and got the ticket, to me, even at nine years old, going to that gig felt like he'd got the golden ticket, almost yeah. like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. We've got it, you know. And just remember driving down there with my dad and my uncle and just going into this, into the ABC theatre and, you know, the smell of patchouli oil on, on people's leather jackets and the sticky beer on the floor and, and just the house lights went down, man, and Genesis started. And it was just, 
you know, I've got tingles talking to you about it now. It's just such a visual and emotional thing that connected with me or me with that, rather. Just the power of the band and the precision and especially the incredible drumming of Phil Collins and Chester Thompson, who they took out live to play. Right, of course. Phil was singing, who I'm sure you're well aware of. Yes. Um, so that was the night, man. I was just an incredible night. And I just came away going, that's, that's, you know, I was already drumming, but for me, that sealed the deal. Yeah, and, and you need those things, don't you? You need the things that help you along. Because I was much the same when I first started playing in that I didn't really have any inspirations as such. They came a little bit after I'd been playing and you start absorbing all of these things. And I remember my first, the first concert I ever went to and I, it was just like my jaw was on the floor and you're so, at that age, you're so inspired by so many things and you just, and you just carry it with you, don't you? And that's the thing that you go home after that gig and you just practice, practice, practice more because you would just want to be like that, don't you? You you know, I wanted to be Phil Collins and Chester Thompson. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> and I loved, as a, as a kid, I loved theatre and I loved my mum and dad just to take me to see the panto. And while, you know, in, in different summer season shows or comedians or just, you know, summer shows that were kind of popular on the coast or my local theatre. And even though that probably doesn't seem connected to a rock concert and seeing Genesis, I very much do connect it because... I love the pre-show feeling in a theatre, you know, where the kind of red curtains were down or the stage was dark and you were just trying to pick out what the gear was up there. <laughs> I don't know, man. I just really got bitten by the stage kind of bug. And, you know, I used to even go home, you know, after seeing a show as a kind of, you know, as a 10-year-old kid. And I would actually make little... It's, it's not embarrassing to admit, man. I'm actually quite proud of it. But I used to... This is long before YouTube and stuff. So I'd visualise what I'd seen. And I used to make little kind of... Uh, kind of cardboard theatre cutouts that I would draw myself and then put on the music of, say, Genesis, as that was the main band I was into, and kind of reenact the show with awesome. little... I used to have Sabutio lights, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would get different colours on them to try and... <laughs> I mean, I'm remembering this stuff, talking to you now. I'd, I'd forgotten about that. But, I mean, that's kind of sweet, I think, to think that I was trying to relive that night or... Those yeah. concerts I'd seen. I mean, I didn't do it with everything, but I tried to remember the show because there was no way of remembering. You know, you no, that's film, right. yeah. Which was actually a great thing because you, as we know, I think people absorb things a lot more then. I'm not saying that we're some sort of elitist group that, you know, absorb things differently to people do today because thank God for YouTube and all the social media platforms that we're now speaking on now. And I'm so yeah. glad that we are. But yeah, I just absorbed. I think the word, I'm going to say absorbed a lot tonight. <laughs> well, I think there's something to be said for um, how receptive you are, especially when you're younger. And like we're saying, you, you go to these things that are so inspirational because I can remember vividly the picture in my head of so many concerts I went to when I was young, you know, and there's no YouTube video in the world that will ever replace or better that, you know, because I've got it all in there. And it's not just what I saw, it's how I felt at the same time. So moving on to... What I want to know basically from here is uh, who were your other inspirations around then as well? And moving on to like first gigs and stuff like that. First gigs for me playing first gigs. Yeah. 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 So other inspirations. I mean, God, I was, I was so into, I can't, I can't exaggerate enough how into I was, you know, Phil, Phil's playing in particular. And because he played with so many people, not just with Genesis, his career, um, you know, obviously diverted to a solo album, which became 
massive. And yeah. he became a solo artist. So I just, for a while, my poor dad, who had an incredible record collection, would be like, listen, check out this band, check out this band. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Genesis, Phil Collins. <laughs> so, um, but I, I used to, yeah, lo- loads of Phil and stuff associated with him. But branching out as I got older and into my early teens and that, I mean, I've got a, I've got a shout out, Phil Gould's at Level Forty Two. You know, yeah. I've got a good friend, Gary Dungar, who's a great bass player from Norfolk, and that I'm still good friends with, and. Um, he took me to see Level 42, I want to say when I was 14 or 15. And it was around the time that they had um, Hot Water. I don't know if you remember that. But again, I associate them with great musicianship, you know, and great songs. And I fell in love with Level 42. That was a big inspiration to me, as was other bands around that time of, you know, I'm going to say Nick Kershaw, who's a phenomenal guitar player, singer, songwriter. Yep. I went to see him at the Ipswich Gourmand and... A little later, I got really into a band called It Bites. Yeah, yeah. You would be aware of phenomenal bands, you know. Um, so Bob Dalton. But I was I was into so many things. I mean, drummers, if you're asking about drummers, I was inspired by, you know, Phil Gould, the obvious kind of big cat guys like Vinny and yeah. and Big Reckle. I mean, watching them guys, I sort of almost, I mean, they seem superhuman to me. And actually sitting here right now, they still are. You know, there's things yeah. that they can do, but... I just want, I want to kind of groove song orientated playing. I think I'd like to think and hope that's been my strength and why I've worked with the people I've worked with is not because of my aerobic chops, <laughs> quite the opposite. I think and hope I've been a really solid foundation for the artists, you know. So first gigs, I, um, yeah, not long after seeing Genesis and that, I, I went in for a local talent shows in Norwich which is my, you know, my hometown, Norwich and Norfolk. And um, yeah, just sort of getting, getting an opportunity to play in front of people, really, and making mistakes <laughs> in front sure. of people. Learning to reset those mistakes, you know. Um, but I was, in, I was in a few different local, very young kind of summer season bands playing on the North, the North Norfolk coast and different summer yep. season camps. Playing covers, mate, you know, just doing sure. the cabaret scene. And... I guess they call it cutting your teeth, you know. I was just so I was lucky from a young age, Chris, to be playing with people, you know, different groups. Yeah, and also uh, assuming that when you were doing the summer seasons and stuff like that, you're actually getting a few quid for it as well. I was, yeah, uh, yeah, which was which felt good, you know. Like, yeah. hang on, so I hit this, and then people enjoy it and clap at the end, you know. Yeah, and you know, my mum and dad was collecting the whatever the small amount of money we were getting, and and it was it was a good feeling, you know. And um, I guess it was my version of a paper round. Of course, <laughs> you know? absolutely, absolutely. Um, so where did it go? What, what were the next steps? Essentially, what was your bridge from doing that to thinking to yourself, uh, I could, I think I might actually be able to craft a living out of doing this just a continuation of those summer season gigs, which slowly evolved into me not doing that, but joining kind of um, original bands and also other cover bands in Norwich and played in a reggae band in Norwich. I played in a sort of a funk rock band, all great players. And it was all great ground. And I played in a soul band. Um, probably not, you know, doing the best at all of those styles, but certainly trying to be around players that could play like that, you know? But eventually, I, I always knew that I wanted to kind of give it, you know, give it a go, as in professionally. Yeah. And 
like many of us, I didn't, there's no, there's not one correct, there's not one only route to get to this point of talking to you and having very, very fortunately a CV to share with you. But ultimately I knew I wanted to do it, but it's, I wasn't too, too sure how. And when I left school, I worked for a few years in men's, in menswear shops, you know, because it was a, just being a salesman, I can talk and I thought it'd be an easy thing to do. I'm not, you know, I didn't leave school with a bunch of qualifications apart from I knew I wanted to be a drummer. And I remember my, God bless my dad. And, um, but he was really disappointed when I came home and said, dad, I've got a job. I'm, I'm, I've got a job. I'm going to work in next as a, you know, as a, as a salesman. And he, he didn't fall out with me over it, but he was really, I could sense and knew he was really disappointed that not because I hadn't, not because I've got a job, but because, and I, he's later told me this and, and I know this anyway, but he's like, you know, if I had, uh, uh, you know, like a smidgen of your talent, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't waste it and, you know, go and work in a, a shop. And that's no disrespect to anyone. No, no, of course, shop. of course. But the, but the funny thing is that's, that's quite the opposite of how some parents would be about it because some parents would be, uh, you know, the kid says, I want to make a living out of music. And the parents say, no, you don't. You want to go and get a job in a normal, in a get and go and get a regular job. Thankfully well, for I, me, I, I was, I was the same as you. My parents were, were incredibly supportive, but, uh, but you know, what your dad said is probably exactly the same as what my dad in particular was like as well in the, you know, he's not musical. He wasn't musical at all. Um, but had he seen, as he saw what I was trying to do, he was supportive in me so much because it's not anything that he could have done, you know, and, and of course, as a parent, you just want your children to do the best they can. Absolutely. Amen. Amen to that, mate. And, yeah. and the fact that he was sort of um, pointing that out to me, you know, I, I understood and I wasn't, I think at first I was, I was sort of disappointed that he seemed disappointed that I'd got a job. <laughs> but I know, you know God, now I could thank God for his enthusiasm and reminding me of, you know, something that I love. But yeah, so after a few years of working in clothes shops in Norwich, I, I, I sort of, I knew that I wanted to, I didn't want to leave Norwich because I wanted to leave Norwich. I felt I needed to progress. And for me, that meant, if it meant leaving where I was born, then I was going to do that. And probably like everybody, I thought I'm going to be moving to London, you know. But I you know, started looking in the Melody Maker in the NME newspapers over here, and I saw an advert for a band called Bullywag, which was a, a Liverpool-based rap, rock, heavy, reggae crossover band of a bunch of styles and a great energy and a, and a kind of a scouseness, you know. Okay. <laughs> and this advert said, Drummer Wanted, must be committed and happy. Um, Rage Against the Machine meets Funkadelic. <laughs> and something about those, all of those words, I thought, well, I'm happy. Nice. <laughs> and, I'll definitely, I'll, and I'll definitely commit if I'm happy. I love Rage Against the Machine and I love Funkadelic because my mind was sure. broadening out at that time um, in my early sort of 20s into bands like the Chili Peppers, bands like Fishbone, bands like King's X, 24-7 Spies, Bands like Soundgarden, bands like Pearl Jam, you know. So them saying that, and, and obviously bands like Rage Against Machine. So I was, yeah, I answered this ad or I phoned the manager up and yeah, he, he sent me an EP, a vinyl EP, which arrived a couple of days later and I stuck it on and it just blew me away. This band, you know, had made this four track EP. So much so that I rang up and said, I really want to join the band and 
So, oh, by the way, the advert said uh, record deal waiting. Okay. There's a record deal. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. When, when I finally moved up and got the gig, I found out two years later that, that we were still waiting, waiting for the record deal. That <laughs> <laughs> so he wasn't actually lying. It was just really cleverly worded, you know. <laughs> but in short, mate, because I don't want to spend loads of time, or well, your time on this particular part of the kind of my life, but um, I was lucky enough to get the gig. I joined that band. I was in that band. We did get a record deal. Um, we got signed to Mercury Records and we made one album. Wow. But we made um, a, an album I was really pr- proud of and I'm proud of. And it's called Songs of Praise. Nice. <laughs> and it was a, a mishmash of styles. You know, it was a nutty bunch of people, but some incredible musicianship and taught me a lot. And I'm really glad I was in that band, you know. Sure. And great players and a great time. But, it, you know, beyond that, it wasn't meant to be. But those six, seven years I was in that band was a, was really valuable to me, you know. And, um, yeah, the album was produced by Chris Hughes, who you may know as a drummer, was the drummer for Adam and the Ants. Right. And his Tears for Fears, Robert yeah. Plum. And it was engineered by Gary Langan, who was in the Art of Noise and Trevor Horn's kind of engineer. So, yeah. Wow. So, so that takes us to that point, mate, really. For me being, I guess at that point, man, I was a signed drummer in a professional band, Touring the UK, touring Europe, opening for bands like Corn, Limp Biscuit, Sugar Ray, a lot of kind of rock stuff, Clawfinger. We were very much a Kerrang magazine, Metal Hammer type band, you know. Amazing. Yeah. And so it, it might not have lasted uh, perhaps as long as you'd all hoped, but that was your inner century and that was the, the way that you started networking as a musician, essentially, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So my question then is like when the band folded, where, where did you sort of find yourself going from there? Did you think that you might have to, that might be it? Or had you made some contacts and what were the next steps? While I was in that band, part of the uh, recording process, we were you know, around different studios and me kind of, you know, being the way I am, which is, I'd like to think pretty personable. And I, I love meeting new people and having conversations like we all do. But in those sort of occasions where we were on tour or in particular in studios that I kind of met a few kind of really kind of good guys, you know, who um, were great producers. In particular, I met a guy called Andy Wright. He was working in Metropolis Studios when we were there and he works quite regularly with Simple Minds and Simply Red and amongst others sort of, you know, a a lot of projects and another guy called Al Stone. So, I bring them up because when Bullywag broke up, I was lost, man. I was really disheartened. And sure. I was, I don't mind telling you, mate, I cried when we got signed to the label and I cried when we got dropped. Yeah. It was felt like the last supper and I was lost. But with the greatest respect to the band, it ended for me now looking back at the right time, you know, and I just didn't know how to get to the next point. But yeah, and um, I, I ended up getting a session with Andy and Al for an artist called Riyadh, who was kind of similar to Seal. And there was a bunch of great guys playing on that session. I was definitely the odd one out because they were quite name session dudes. And I was like, you know, Steve Barley from Norwich. Right. <laughs> you know, and, um, but they took a ch- chance on me because when the band broke up, I was kind of, has- I wasn't hassling them, but I was reminding them that I really was looking to be a session guy. But when you've been a band guy and people only associate you as a band guy, You've got nothing to say that you've done before, session-wise, you know? So of course. I respect them guys for giving me that opportunity. So, yeah, I did this album with Riyadh. And not long after that, again, I was 
reconnecting with old friends and work acquaintances. And a guy who used to manage Atomic Kitten, the girl pop group from Liverpool, which was a, a massively left turn from where I'd been with Body Rag. They were number one or getting towards that point with this single called Hole Again, yep. which is a big pop song. And it was, I think it got to number one for about three or four weeks. I got in touch with Martin and said, listen, if you ever put in a, a live band together for the girls, I'd be really up for it. And he was like, great. I thought you were a rock sort of a rock and rock and alternative drummer. I said, no, I am, but I am because that's, that was the thing I was doing. Of course, of course. And God bless him, he gave me an opportunity. And, and my first gig with the Tommy Kitten was, uh, was Top of the Pops. No way. It was put together quite quickly. It wasn't the band that ended up going on tour with her, or we didn't have an MD at the time, but it was Stuart Kershaw, who was one of the writers of the song on keys, who's actually a great drummer himself. Right. He plays orchestral manoeuvres in the dark. And it was two backing singers, a girl called Jennifer John and another lady I can't remember. Um, a great scout space band called Gordon Pemberton. Everyone calls him Pemo. Um, yeah, and we were on top of the pops. It was it was killer. Great. Um, and not long after that, um, you know, because of the success of the song and then the album was doing well, the manager said, we're going to bring in an MD you know, now for the tour. And I found out that the MD ultimately, like most MDs do, is I know you're an MD and you've MD shows, people tend to work with people that they know and have a history with and a trust yeah. with, which I understand. But Martin said to this MD, and the MD's called Mike Stevens. You right. might be aware of his name. Yeah. And I didn't know Mike at the time, but he was, yeah, he was brought in as MD. But Martin, the manager, said, listen, check out these Liverpool guys. And if, you know, I'd really like them to be in the band. And Mike's like, well, you know, I tend to use my own people. And he said, no, I appreciate that, but check these guys out. So we did. And thank God, Mike really liked us. And... I got on really well with him. He's actually from, um, originally from Wisbeach. <laughs> oh, really? So we kind of had this sure. little famous Norfolk thing, com you know, in, in common. And um, meeting Mike was a golden ticket for me, for my career, I have to say. Not only as a friend, but he subsequently went on to put a lot of good work my way. And I'm incredibly grateful to him for that. And that was it. You were in. At that point, you sort of got the, got what you wanted and, and you were on your way to being an all-round session guy as you are still now. It's quite funny what you say, though, about you do get these people in life, though, who will give you that opportunity and the chance because for whatever reason, it's quite, uh, it's quite easy. You'll get tarred with a certain brush of being, you know, the rock guy or the this guy or the that guy. You know what I mean? But there are mm -hmm. certain people who see it in you that you've got more more strings to your bow, excuse the pun, than that. Um, and that, you know, they'll be the ones who are often quite pivotal in how your career can move on. And I can probably look back to probably only maybe half a dozen people, but those people were the ones that sort of, I was able to progress at that point to something else. And I've always liked to challenge and to sort of prove that you're not just, uh, always in that one box that a lot of people think you are, you know, so it's quite interesting what you were saying. So um, at that point, then you, that's when things started really picking up. Uh, mm -hmm. I would love to sit and talk to you about every single person you've worked with, but we would probably be here until about two o'clock in the morning. Um, so from there, give me like a best of highlights, kind of if you can in chronological order of the people that you then went on to work with. 
Okay. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> good night. Um, no, so, so very quickly and surprisingly, mate, coming off the Atomic Kitten tour, yep. my pal Andy Wright, who I'd done the Riyadh album with, who I guess maybe was checking me out to see how, what I could do on that, called me and said, hey, Steve, how are you? What are you up to, man? And I said, oh, I've just, just finished the tour with uh, Atomic Kitten. Oh, great. Yeah. He said, oh, I'm, funny enough, I'm now going to produce their next single, Eternal Frame. I was like, oh, wow, great. I presumed he might be going to ask me to, to play on that because of this. He said, he said, no, he said, I'm just calling you because I've got an album project coming up. He said, and I think you might be really suited for it. I predominantly, I, I pre presume immediately might be a new artist or someone that he's working with. And he says, um, you know, I did that album uh, two or three years ago with Jeff Beck. And I said, yeah, yeah. He said, um, well, I'm going to do his next record. And I was like, oh, wow, amazing. He said, I'd really like to be the drummer on the project. Oh. And I was, as you know and I know, and everyone knows, Jeff Beck is God. You know? That's it, that's there, isn't it? <laughs> and I, uh, I, I, also, I also immediately went, what? You know, in the back of my mind, why are you ringing me? Not because <laughs> I can't play drums. I can play drums, you know, and I know how I can play, but I associate, like we all do, Jeff with some of the greatest rock fusion of course. drummers in general in the world. Yeah. Some of my heroes, you know, Simon Phillips, Terry Bozio, Vinnie Colaiuta, Narada Michael Walden, Andy Gangadin. I mean, there's thousands, isn't there? Yeah. Yep. Anyway, I said yes. <laughs> and um, so I'm trying to do this quickly. Um, so I went down to Metropolis and I set my kit up. We got a great drum sound. I started playing on the stuff. Jeff Beck walks in. I'm already tracking the song. Jeff's like giving me great vibes through the screen. And we do the album. And it's a great, I mean, it was just amazing. And which album was this? It's called Jeff. It was released in 2003 uh, for Sony. And uh, I played on about six songs on that album. Amazing. Including one, which the following year won Best Instrumental Rock Performance at the Grammys. So I was associated for, you know, with a, with a Grammy Award winning piece by Jeff, which is so amazing to oh, happen. So I did that project and yeah, for all the reasons you can imagine, it was just, just amazing. And <laughs> also how great is that, that? And that probably sums it all up about being a musician in general. And it doesn't, you know, a gig is a gig and whatever, but going from Atomic Kitten to Jeff Beck. Yeah. You know, right there. That's incredible, isn't it? It is. I don't think Jeff knew I'd just done Atomic Kitten. No, well, maybe and not. But... Say, I mean, and that's no disrespect to Atomic Kitten. They were great at doing Atomic Kitten. Oh, of Kitten. course. Yeah, that absolutely. If they're watching this, I love that tour. And that was an incredible tour. In fact, that was a really important tour for many reasons. When I connected with our mutual friend, Adam Waitman, on that tour. Right, right. And I don't want to go backwards, but it was a special tour. But yeah, Jeff, as we all know, is held in a completely different... You know, well, it's, it's just, you know, that's how diverse it is, isn't it? Going from playing with a pop group to playing with, uh, you know, one of the greatest guitarists who's ever lived, you know, yes. and that, but that's what it's all about. It doesn't matter that it doesn't mean that you'll play any better, any worse. You'll go in and you'll do your absolute best, whatever the gig. But that's the beauty of it is that it can be that diverse. Luckily for me, it wasn't, even though I love that material, it wasn't out there, mad song, uh, time signature fusion, because that's what I, some of what Jeff Beck's repertoire has been. Of course. And I, and I thought and I thought Andy might be, um, you know, as I say, I knew I, I know I could play the drums, uh, but I thought it was going to be that type of record. But luckily for me, it wasn't. It was more 
big, heavy, funky rock beats, uh, break beats almost, um, almost kind of like Prodigy sure. uh, Chemical Brothers, even though the, the end result wasn't that because you got Jeff on it doing Jeff. But from a rhythm uh, section point of view, it was quite alternative. And so I suited it really well, I'd like to think. And so, yeah. some of it got chopped up because it was the type of record they were making. It wasn't a making, it wasn't like a raw performance based album, you know. It was very um, produced. It was, you know, um, it was. But but one one amazing thing happened while I was there. If that wasn't, you know, for me, that was enough. I was just chuffed and thought I was about to pack my gear up and go, thanks, Jeff. Amazing to meet you. And, you know, wow, you know, let's yeah. get a quick selfie. So. Yeah. Even though we didn't do selfies in 2000. <laughs> um, but just by chance, luck, divine, you know, intervention, whatever you want to call it. Jeff came in on the last morning of the session saying, oh, I've just been contacted by um, the Royal Festival Hall to do um, some shows. I was like, wow. Immediately thinking, I'd love to come and see that, you know. Well, I just felt lucky to hear about them before they were happening. And he said, yeah, it's going to be like sort of three days, like a career retrospective. So, you know, doing my career, highlights of my career, and then guests from... Um, artist that he's contributed to on his own sort of thing as well. I was like, amazing. And he asked me to do it as be, being the house band for it. Wow. I couldn't believe it. Wow. And of course I said yes. Yeah. But as I jumped back on the train to Liverpool with my backpack and my headphones on, thinking, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> what have I done as in, what have I taken on here? Yeah. Know? But... I'm going to fast forward because I can get really into detail about things. And I don't mean to, mate. It's just because I'm... No, no, it's fine. I'm loving it. I don't want to like ruin everyone's time. No, no, it's fine. The fast forwarded version of this is that I did it. And how was it? And and I'm super proud of being involved in it. I did the best job I could and I loved it. And it was three nights. It was in September of 2002. And we played the Royal Festival Hall beautiful kind of three nights with Jeff, just Jeff being Jeff and incredible. Was it a different set each night? There was a, there was a nucleus of the same songs with guests each night that changed. Um, I mean, one thing that happened, which took the weight off the mad fusion stuff, which I'll be honest, I had got a bit paranoid and freaked out at one point before I'd gone down to start rehearsals thinking I couldn't do it was Terry Bozio, the great Terry Bozio, was brought in to, to take the... Well, he wasn't brought in to take the weight off my shoulders, but by him coming in, it did do that. And I'd sure. say that in the sense that the Guitar Shop Trio, which I don't know if you know the Guitar Shop album, yeah, one of my favourite Jeff records. Of course. The, the, that that, um, that three-piece reformed for those shows. Amazing. So that was a lot of the Mad Fusion stuff. Yeah. So I, Jeff Careers go, goes from the sick goes from the 60s as we know to now and yeah um so i i was kind of doing a lot of the early stuff the 60s and 70s periods you know and me and terry played on a on a several things together which was just a joy for me wow i'd like to think through my and terry's ears we didn't tread on each other's toes that i just laid it down in the best heavy way i could did you um did you do uh lead boots we didn't (laughs) Did you do yeah. Hi Ho Silver Lining? We did. And you know what? Through all the rehearsals and all the production rehearsals, he never sang it once. 
I, I, yeah. I don't want to be disrespectful in public to Jeff Beck, but I think we all know, and I think he's been publicly honest about it. Let's face it, the, the, the Musos and the true Jeff Beck fans don't associate. It's so funny. No, and he, it, it's hilarious, you know? So I know. All the, way, all the way through those rehearsals and production rehearsals, we just played it instrumentally, and maybe one of the band's musicians sang it because he right. wouldn't sing yeah. So the only three times he sang it was when we did the shows. And it was like the first night, especially, was like, there it is, it is him, it's the voice, you know? But no, we played. So funny when you look at Apple Music and you look at Jeff Beck, you know, like the first song that comes up, the most popular song is Hi Ho Silver Lining. And you think you yeah. share that to any muso, they're going to tell you where to go with it. You know what I mean? <laughs> we, you know, you took, you touched upon that great song there, Lead Boots, which we didn't do, but we did songs from that period. So we did Scatterbrain. Oh, wow. We did, um, we did the pump. We did uh, Blue Wind, you know, off 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 that same. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's that album called? Wired. Yeah, it and must have been an absolute dream though to do all a, that, man. And it was a joy. And check this out: we had the guests, mate. Roger yeah, Waters, Pink Floyd. Oh wow! So we got to play with Roger Waters. Me and Terry were playing together with Roger, doing Amazing. this epic piece called "What God Wants," which is in several parts. And Jeff okay. played on. And that was a joy, and Roger was great. Um, we did, uh, John McLaughlin. I can't right. believe I shared the stage with John McLaughlin, you know. And the White, uh, the White Stripes did it. Wow. A great singer from the States called Jimmy Hall did it. Um, um, Arif, uh, I can't remember his surname, Dervish, played Tabla. He did it. Um, Imogen Heap, who yep. was less known then. But Jeff loved Imogen, and she came in and and sang and I want to go Paul Rogers from Free Bad Company. Yeah, 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 it was yeah. like it was and I can't I can't fast forward through this because it's, it was too special just for me to not give it a little bit of um excitement with your uh viewers, you know. But it was amazing. And I was so proud of myself for doing it. And um, I'll be honest, I didn't work with him again. And that's fine. Um I don't say that in the sense that he never called me back, which of course he didn't. Um <laughs> But it, it was perfect, and, let's, and, and um, I've got the memory of doing it, and I know I know he was happy with what I did. And of course, yeah. I, but that's life, guy, isn't it? You know, it is life, mate. And I'm so yeah. proud that I can associate myself yeah. with that, and it helped me no end with the next artists. You know. So who well, were the I'm next? Who were the, sorry, go on. I'm just going to share one little thing that go on. my only. It's not a disappointment. It's it's a selfishness, really. Okay. Coming out of the gig that I always hoped and. I um to from what I gather is that the whole thing was recorded. You know, there was a there was a kind of a a big kind of truck outside recording every night. You know, and I'll be honest with you because I'm so proud of how I played and what happened that in those three days, I always hoped and still to this day hoped hope it would be released. You know, because they were all recorded onto a 48 track kind of you know desk. You know, so I really hope that stuff sees the light of day. Wow, so it is you know, out there. It is there somewhere. But, it's, it's on tape somewhere, but Jeff yeah. is incredibly, um, you know, um, private with his stuff and what he does with it. And so, and also, is he that. is he still on the same label as that was then? And is all there all that politics? I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure if he's on Sony. I think he's been with Sony Epic for years. I yeah, that's so. what I thought. Yeah. Oh man, I really hope at some point that does see the light of day. I really yeah. do because I was so proud of it, and it was yeah, it wasn't. I'm proud of the album that I played on. But because it was kind of produced and chopped up, the live thing would be just yeah. performance-based. And I think for you also, you know, you went in knowing that you were going to just, thinking you were just going to do the album. 
doing the live shows was a bonus, right? A complete bonus. And also, not only that, it wasn't just any old Jeff Beck live show. It was with with all those guests as well. So, I yeah. mean, you know, if you're going to wrap it up in a nice little Jeff Beck bubble right there, that's how you want to do it. An album, a few gigs with some fucking great names. You know what I mean? I know. It's really... I talk about it like like it wasn't me. I'll be honest. Mate. Right. Time ago, but I, I look back in the, in the mass fondness and pride that I was involved in it. But yeah, thank you. It was yeah. a nice thing to look back on. Mate. Amazing. So where, where did you go from there, man? What was after that? Who was next? So the following year, through him seeing me at the... Um, so Mike Stevens, the MD for the Atomic Kitten Show, I purposely, I don't mind sharing this, invited him down to the one of the nights of the Jeff Beck show because I was, of course. No, he was a good pal by then. But as an MD, I really wanted him to see me yeah. Yeah, yeah. In, in on that stage. And I guess he was, you know, he, he saw that I could play when he, you know, he chose, you know, kept me on for the Atomic Kitten tour. But yeah, Mike the following year called me and said, hey, mate, um, you know, I hope you're doing good. He said, listen, I've, it's got a gig that's come up and would really like you to do it. I think you'd be great for it. And I was like, I'd love it. Again, presuming it'd be a new up-and-coming up and artist or something. But <clears throat> it was Annie Lennox from the Eurythmics. Wow. And um, again, I was just sort of jaw-dropped by that one. <clears throat> and uh, it was going to be our first solo tour. This was in 2003. Went to her house, met Annie. There was no audition. It was just, she just wanted to meet people. And I guess she no. trusted Mike's. When, when I spoke to our mutual friend, Adam Wakeman, when he came on and did this, he obviously um, did some, uh, spent some time playing with Annie Lennox as well. Was, all, was yeah. this the same time or was this different? So same. it was the same time. And he spoke very highly of it. And I, I love her. And I would like to think that she is as great as I think she is. So I'm asking you to tell me, is she as great as I think she is? She's better than you can imagine. I bet. I bet. Mate. I'm, I'm not, I'm not blowing smoke anywhere here. This is, she's, is she ticks every box for me for everything that I love in music, you know, emotion, yeah, lyrical content, you know, soul. It's got so much soul. Do you know what I mean? There's, oh, a dark, God, yeah. there's a darkness there. There's a beauty there with the yeah. lyrics. There's, <clears throat> there's a pin, you can hear a pin drop in the audience some of the I nights, bet. you know, yeah. with the amount of people tuning into her emotion or, people dripping in sweat because we were at the penultimate point of the show where we would do Missionary Man and I Need a Man by you with Mix and then we did Sweet Dreams and she'd be just on her knees, man, rocking out like in Mick Jagger or oh, all wow. the greats. You know what I mean? She's, <clears throat> she's amazing. Yeah. So I was, yeah, um, so lucky to do that tour and, and subsequent tours with her. And that was in 2003. It was her first solo tour. So it's quite a big deal then, her, you know, her being her first solo tour, you know, away from the Eurythmics and stuff like that. that I mean, that's a, that's a special gig in itself, isn't it? Very special. And she had done shows before. It wasn't the very first thing she'd ever done with the live band solo. She did a special gig at Central Park in New York and maybe some subsequent live TV performances. Great drummer called Steve Wolf was playing on that, a New York-based guy. And Steve Lipson... He's a great, well, he's a great producer, a great bass player. He was her M, uh, MD of the live stuff she did then. And also the producer of Diva, her great, sure. her great solo album. So, yeah, it was a big it was a big deal for her to be doing her first tour, um, solo tour. And 
it was North America and it was the UK um, and, it, and it was Europe, you know. And um, my first time going to America, mate. Oh, really? Um, I drunk it and I'll never, I'll never forget. We'd done a warm-up show in London to friends and family just to sort of get the kind of, uh, just get the engine kind of running, yeah. so to speak. That was a lovely event. Um, but then our first, our very first show show to the fans was in Miami. Nice. And I remember, I couldn't believe, you know, not only landed in Miami, going, I'm in America, do you know what I mean? And then two days later, going to the theatre for sound check, and my drum kit was there. <laughs> and that sounds stupid, but I was like, my drums are actually <laughs> in America right now. <laughs> it, was, it was just, to me, it was amazing, you know. Sure. And, and even though we'd done the warm-up show in London, nothing had kind of um, prepared us for what was going to happen. The audience response was just godlike you know yeah so brilliant tour mate with her in 2003 great and so luckily for me i don't think and me and all the bands um i don't think she was set to tour the following year there wasn't a, another album to promote anything but again divine intervention luck whatever you want to call it um an old friend of hers called to say does she want to come out and open for him on a tour and that guy was sting so the following year, we did, and thankfully she said yes. Of course. She said no. You know, because Annie, Annie's toured for years, you know, but it's exhausting. I think she don't, wouldn't mind me saying this, that she's been quite public to say that she finds it quite exhausting. And I'm not sure. surprised. Sure. Um, not because of her health, because of the amount of emotion she puts into it. So yeah. being the point of the triangle, if the band is, you know, the bit of the back, she's in that spotlight. So I think she found it emotionally quite taxing you know but yeah thankfully sting asked her to do a tour and we went out the following year and we did 60 shows across wow. north america and it was mate it was amazing yeah i bet god that must have been <sighs> so good man uh, yeah um what i mean you were with her for for some time we what about uh live eight though we need to talk about live was it live eight or live earth which one was yes. it um that was the following year after the sting tour we did yeah so we did live eight we yeah and we just did three songs. She did one on the piano. She sang Why, which right. floored, floored everyone. Yeah, I remember. Song. Yeah, I remember seeing it. And then we stumbled on. <laughs> the <band>. <laughs> 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 yeah. Like Morecambe and Wise through the curtain. <laughs> um, and blew it, no. And, no, no. and we, um, we did kill a song of hers called Little Bird of Diva. And we did, um, of course, we did Sweet Dreams. Yeah. Amazing, mate. And I, it's the biggest show I've done in my career, mate. You know, um, yeah. 200,000 people in front of me, yep. us, you know, and plus the televised, the televised world and stuff like that. And, uh, and I've shared this before with someone else talking about it the other week that I remember playing, and it's obviously every show you want to nail it. Yeah. But that one, I, I just had this massive feeling of like everyone's watching this. Yeah. You know, everyone's watching her. You've got to nail it. And I was, I always get nervous, man. Or oh, I've got that pre-show adrenaline mixture of nerves. Get me on the kit. Yeah. You know, with the sick bucket. <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Mixture. But I remember, you know, we start, and Little Bird is such a great song to play. It's got no track. It's got no kind of loops or anything. It's true. Sure. As you can tell, it kind of, you know. But it's got <laughs> a lot of, um, Is it was a great, it's one of those songs, that, you know, when you've been in bands, mate, and you play, and you learn a song by someone, and it just works organically yeah. as a band. That's one of those songs. And we just, from the moment we learned that, it just felt great. And it just, 
just rock and roll, man. And um, but I remember looking to the right at the stage as we got into the, you know, I kind of settled in, did the first verse, you know, first chorus, and then we gone back into the second verse and the kind of nerves are settling. And I kind of give it a little look over to the right of the stage just to see probably my drum tech or someone there. And I see Paul McCartney, I see Madonna, I see Bob Geldof, I see George Michael, I see Brad Pitt, and I'm thinking, man, that's <laughs> this is amazing. it. You know, it's kind of, this is a special one. So yeah, we did, yeah, we did Live Aid. Yeah, that's incredible. I want to move on to, uh, from one amazing female singer to another one, which is Anastasia. Mm. So how did that come about? My golden ticket, Mike Stevens again. So right, I'd, there you go, yeah. We've kind of missed, but it's fine. No, no, go for it. What have I missed in no, between? No, I was I was fortunate enough, you know, because you said, how long did I play with Annie? Because Annie, there was, there was breaks between Annie, and I sure. was fortunate enough to do um, a great pop band called the Sugar Babes. Of course, yeah. For four or five years. Um, yeah, from like 2006 to, no, 2005 to nine. I did, I think, four tours with the Sugar Babes. Amazing. And they were really busy. Yeah, I Again, pop back. I really enjoyed that gig. It was, a, I guess, you know, similar in the sense that it was another girl band, but it was a lot darker than Atomic Kitten. Right. Because in the kind of, I don't know if you remember the Sugar Babes stuff, yeah. there was some good dark pop songs and a great band. I played with lots of really great musicians on that and it was a great time. And it was, you know, um, but that did lead to Anastasia. And that right. came around, like I said, in 2009. Sugar Babes were mixing it up and getting a new band, which is cool. It kind of, you know, like bands kind of do once in yep. a while, they pick things up. And um, yeah, Mike, Mike put me forward to Anastasia, which he was MDing. And um, me and the bass player from the Sugar Babes band, Orofo, Arakaway, we both jumped together onto um, Anastasia. And okay. proud to say that. I mean, up, up until her last gig last February of 2020, we're still her rhythm section, you know, which right. has been my longest standing gig. And again, what a powerhouse, man. She's a yeah. phenomenal, phenomenal singer. Yeah. Massive fan base, great, great songs. Again, I've been so lucky to tour extensively with her most years. I mean, 2009 was a big one. We did Europe and Russia. Um, and then the following year, we did a bunch of festivals, including you know a bunch of summer festivals around Europe. <clears throat> did the Montreux Jazz Festival. Nice. It was super cool to do. And I want to say either 2000 and, yeah, 2012, we were due to do, she brought out an album called It's a Man's World with a bunch of rock covers by male singers. Yeah. She purposely chose these songs, you know, because she can kill a rock song. Of course. Basically. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. We got to do that. And just, just before we were due to go out, I say just before, as in like maybe two months before, she got the tragic, tragically sad news that she'd got breast cancer for the yeah. second time. Yeah. So understandably, everything was shelved while she got her health together. And so happy to share, like everyone knows now, that she, you know, she got through that and she's yeah. cancer free, mate. Yeah. But, Again, I don't take it for granted just because I've done previous tours with her that I would um, get more stuff. But since she came back from her cancer success, you know, um, you know, being being free of cancer, that been, I've been torn with it since 2014, right yeah, up until wow. right up until um, just last year. We were in New Zealand, January right. 2020, before this whole pandemic kicked off. So 
I just want to, I want to finish. Um, I'm going to brave, brave it here from a guitarist talking to a drummer. I'm, we're going to talk about gear. Okay. Because okay. I saw that you're, you, um, and it's, there's kind of a tenuous link here because I, I kind of used to know the guys, still know the guys kind of, you use Natal drums, don't you? I do. Very proudly, so, yeah. I, I, I assume you know George Frederick. Is that how why you started using him? Yeah. I know George very well. We were speaking today, actually, yeah. Oh, were you? I haven't spoken to him in quite a few years, but yeah, I, from my days uh, with Marshall and stuff like that, when he used to do okay. the stuff for those guys, that's when I first met met George. And yeah, it's nice to see, uh, who else? Oh, it was, uh, Simon Mary when he was on here. Simon Mary played the soul. Julian yeah. Chambers plays the soul. Um, Jamie, Jamie Morrison from, um, from Stereophonics. Plays yeah, the they're looking after you guys then. That's good. They really are, mate. They're great drums. They sound amazing. I've been with them since uh, 2016. Right. In fact, one of the first tours I took him out on was a tour with Anastasia in 2016. And subsequently, the following year, I was lucky enough to, which is quite a nice full circle, going back to one of the early things we spoke about. But I was lucky enough to, uh, to do a European tour with Mike and the Mechanics. Amazing. So with Mike Rutherford from Genesis, so yeah, yeah, yeah. You and your kind of uh, viewers can imagine. For me, is that kid from all those years ago as a you know nine-year-old kid watching Genesis to share in the stage and the tour bus with Mike Rutherford. That's uh, that's so complete. good, man. That's so good when that when that sort of stuff happens and you go from being being the fanboy to like the you know, and then you're on the professional side of the fence. Yet you still. still exactly and that's what i was going to say no matter how professional you try and be because i've been in that position a couple of times with some absolute heroes of mine and you just stood there thinking can't quite believe this is happening you know what i mean that you're sharing a stage with these people that even you know you saw when you were a kid and you think I'm gonna you know obviously gonna remain professional but inside you're just a scre screaming fanboy <laughs> I don't mind sharing with you and any mechanics fans that might see this. Oh, or Mike, he knew it. Because it took me a couple of weeks, even with all the people I've been so lucky to play with. That was a, that took me a while to settle into that one. I think just because of that um, connection to me is that nine-year-old me. Yeah. Who's still in me. Yeah. You know, I might look like I've eaten that nine-year-old kid now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, being on stage with Mike, it took me a while, I think, just to get over it. I was comfortable with the drumming but it did take me a while to settle in but what, what really made me happy is because he's got a drummer of 25 years Gary Wallace he's very much his sure. drummer yeah. great drummer you, you probably know Gary you know um, I don't think I do but I know the name I was really lucky and it made, meant the world to me that the following year or maybe it was the year after Gary there was a slight overlap of another tour that Gary was doing and they asked me back to finish the tour so that actually meant the world to me it was one thing to do a tour but to get asked back, especially yeah. from someone like Mike Rutherford, meant the world to me. That, and I really enjoyed those kind of eight shows I did the following year or whatever. So yeah, uh, Steve Barney, thank you ever so much, mate. Thank you. Thanks so much, Chris. Cheers, mate.